Good morning, church. It's me, Chris. <clears throat> I'm back. Everybody's doing great today. Let me get myself situated here. We'll be in uh, 2 Corinthians again. Uh, hopefully, if, if you've been following along, there's some themes that are really beginning to emerge. Uh, and that's a good thing, uh, because uh, when you write letters to somebody, normally there's a theme to the letter. We forget that sometimes, and I uh, hope as you're reading this, it's starting to feel a bit like, yeah, there's, a, this is, there's definitely something here. There's a big context. and he, Paul's talking about a lot of stuff, but it's all connecting because Paul's got a main focus. And that main focus, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. But Paul's got a lot of points here that are actually very, very applicable. And today's chunk kind of touches on two of those points, but I've summed it up kind of in a singular title because they interweave like so much of this. And to take some of these things out of context, it's a useful scripture. Don't get me wrong. Uh, last week, we talked about scripture that's used a lot in baptism. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's wonderful for baptism. But the, the reason for that and the mechanism therein or whatever else in context is something a lot more than baptism. He's not really even talking about baptism so much as, if you will, maybe baptism in the spirit. But it's the same here. We're going to see Paul talking about marriage. Um, but much like the notion of why would, we, why would the old pass away and the new come, why do we care about marriage? And in context, what Paul's saying is it will affect our ministry. And so the time is now, as we mentioned already, but the time will come. So it's not over until it's over. And everything that Paul's talking about right now, all these years ago, he could be saying right now, today, and it still matters. So with that, let's jump into the Word, 2 Corinthians 6. We'll read the whole chapter. I'll read the whole chapter. I guess you guys can read if you want to. You can read along out loud if you'd like. It doesn't matter to me. Either way, I encourage you to read the Word even if it's out loud right now. But we'll be in chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not... I'm sorry. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in, in affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and, are yet, and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Lord, thankful so much for the, the word as a whole, thankful for the book of Second Corinthians, and thankful for today's chapter and the verses therein, Lord. There's a ton of scripture here that's quoted a lot, probably well-known by many believers and non-believers, Lord. I pray today, um, whatever preconceived notions we bring to this, or maybe what we believe to be solid foundational understandings of the scripture, Lord, that we can look at this with fresh eyes today and allow you, through the Holy Spirit, to make this word alive in us, to mean something to us that it could never mean without you and without your Holy Spirit, Lord. I thank you for this time to study together. To your sons, I pray, amen. I'm going to grab a quick sip of this, hopefully not scalding hot coffee. Mm. Praise the Lord. Perfectly warm, but I can still feel my tongue. Okay. Well-known verse alert. I did this last time too. Second Corinthians has lots of these. I probably have to get rid of this slide, but I, I get a couple weeks and I'm using it twice. But like, like last week, let's consider the context here as well. I say consider the context like, oh, that's an option. It, it's not an option. You really should be understanding and trying to figure out the context of every, every passage. Um, but, you know, context is tough to do in a sermon. <laughs> so uh, I'll leave that to you uh, to do your own uh, contextual analysis. And if you have questions about that, please join us for small groups because we actually talk a lot about the context of uh, maybe a series of letters, how old Paul was, where he was at in his ministry. These things matter. Um, th- these aren't just mi- mas- magical books that somebody dug up out of the earth or some nonsense like that. But these are real letters written by people breathed by God. Uh, and, and the time and the place and the setting and the traditions and customs weigh in to what they wrote and how this should be interpreted. So Paul starts with an appeal, a wonderful appeal. <laughs> As we work together with God, don't receive God's grace in vain. It, it, this is quite an appeal, and many seem obvious. It, it, it may, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, do you, do you want to give a dollar for starving children? And the answer is, well... I've already given at the office or whatever, like, oh, so you don't like starving children. Like, no, I'm not saying that. Like, there's, we should be feeding kids that need food, right? Let's not take God's grace in vain. Yes, I agree with that. But what does that mean? What Paul's doing here is he's connecting God's grace to salvation. The grace of God specifically here, this isn't just, you know, that a, a good job offer or, you know, financial windfall or health. This is the grace of God that saves us for all eternity, And if we take the little bit of grace from God in vain, we're liable to take the larger amount of grace from God in vain as well. And Paul quotes Isaiah. I put the scripture in here because uh, every once in a while, Paul quotes something you can find verbatim. When I I say this, don't take it to mean that there's other quotes that Paul's quoting that aren't in the Bible. When Paul quotes scripture, he's most likely quoting it from memory. And sometimes he'll quote six or eight scriptures. Later in this chapter, there's like six or eight that he kind of puts all together as one saying in his mind, but they're all scripture. This one is pretty cut and dried though. Isaiah 49, 8, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. So Paul is bringing back this notion of this is not new. This salvation, this day of salvation, this has been foretold. It is here. Now, if you remember at this time, the Jews still didn't believe that Christ, they still don't believe that Christ was the Messiah. They're still waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for a day of salvation. They're waiting for a time of favor. And they're expecting some, something other than the, the massive grand display that was Christ on this earth. Paul's saying it's here and it's now. Christ came and he died. 
And through that, the day of salvation, a time of favor is among us. The time is now. The favorable time? Now. The day of salvation? Also now. And by now, I and Paul mean now. Not you're going to be saved and not you were always saved and there's no time, whatever time is left doesn't matter. It is right now. Salvation is more than just one day you were saved. It's a process. Yes, you are secured. You will persevere to the end. Absolutely. You will not get away from God. You won't slip through the cracks. But the notion of sanctification working together with salvation is mysterious and beautiful and of God. The time is now. If you want to know when is the time to do something, to double down, to to work more in the Scripture, to spend more time learning or or studying or or going on a mission trip or helping a fellow person or, or praying for your neighbor, the time is now. Maybe you don't know who Christ is, and you're thinking, I, and I'll get around to that. I'm thinking about that, uh, the, you know, waiting till the end when I'm really decrepit. That's when I'll reach out and hopefully get saved then. Don't do that. Do it now. The time is now. The time of favor is now. Why? Because we live in a world that came after Christ died and was resurrected. We now live in the most favorable time. It's clear what God's plan was from the get-go. The Old Testament folks believed in what we believe in. They didn't even have Christ yet. You might say, well, I don't know that. Maybe they just believed in God. I don't think so. Why? Because God said the only way to God is through Christ. They didn't know Christ as a man who was going to die and be resurrected. But they heard the prophecy that a Messiah was coming, and they believed in that Messiah. Then the Messiah took shape and did exactly what was prophesied, and they believed. They were already dead, but that's what they believed in. They were saved by their faith in Christ before Christ even existed. We have it easy by comparison. I'm telling you, there was a man who came to this earth and lived a sinless life, died innocent for us. His blood was shed for me and you. Because of that, I'm free. I'm saved right now. The time of favor is right now. I get to live a a life of full understanding of Christ's work, all of his teachings. That's favor. Paul gets that, and that's what he's talking about here. It's not good times. It's not, well, you know, hey, the economy's good, and I got a new boat, and the lake's been calm, and the weather's warming up. That favorable time will go away real quick. Remember when there was no snow? I know some of us like snow, but if you're driving in the snow and it doesn't feel very favorable, then the snow goes away, you're like, yay, it's a time of favor. And then the snow comes back like, oh, no, it must be an unfavorable time. That's all Paul's talking about. The time of favor, when you're skidding across the ice, it's a favorable time because, you know, if you skid off that ice to your death, you go to the presence of the Lord. If you skid off that ice and into someone's yard, you get an opportunity to speak to somebody else and, and maybe make a friend for life. Lead them to Christ. Favorable time. Favorable is much more than the situation we're in. And he's trying to convince the Corinthians of this. They're trying to live good lives, happy lives, fulfilling lives in Corinth. And the way to do it, maybe we'll emulate this and we'll copy that and we'll bring some prostitutes in the church and, you know, they need work slash saving, I guess. I don't know. And then it's completely off the rails and they can't even tell that they're saved anymore. They're not taking advantage of any of God's favor. They're not working towards any salvation at all. They're just there. They're just going through the motions. So let's know our role. What Paul's talking about is when we know that we're saved, we ought not be an obstacle course. We don't want to be putting barriers between people and Christ. Straighten up, fly right, get a suit, get your hair cut. What's going on? Lose some weight. You know, don't you have a pair of pants? I've heard all this stuff my whole life, by the way. If it, 
you know, what's going on here? How, I mean, if you, you're going to come in here dressed like that or act like that or all you do is kid around, well, that doesn't really make me want to hang out with people in, in that regard. Now, I'm not saying we have people in here that bring air horns and like, this is the way I worship. No, that's absurd. Don't be a distraction. But I would argue they're doing the same thing. We all know people that are being genuine and people that are being jerks. Christians, let's be genuine and not jerks. There may be disagreements we have with people, very fundamental disagreements. They say, this is, this is who I am. This is my life. I've invested in this. I've spent my whole time doing it. I can't walk away now. It would be ruinous for me and others. Okay, I'll be praying for you. And I'll be, be, I'll, I'd like to help you figure out a way out of the situation that you're in. But if what you're caught up in is something that is sinful and destroying you, you refuse to be saved. You won't give Jesus the time of day. That's step one. We've, you've got to understand the truth. You've got to understand the peril and the need for that. And if people see us being saved in a time of favor, moping around and complaining about every little thing, they're not going to get any closer to Christ than if they, they, they watched a rock roll down a hill. We commend ourselves in every way. Sure, surely Paul doesn't mean every way. He does, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Hear that joke? Shirley. Anyway. Well, we commend ourselves in every way. And you think, well, what kind of commendation are we talking about, right? Well, in every way, because everything that's worth commending comes from God. If I have steadfast faith, that came from God, not me, right? My wife's known me for a very long time. And I am not an intrinsically good, faithful person. I struggle with that. I like to flip from thing to thing. If there's any amount of somebody were to come up to her and say, your husband is a faithful, good person, she'd probably be like, that's, that's funny. What? Well, it may seem that way. And she'd be right. I am not a faithful, good person. I'm not a good Christian man. I'm a Christian man, barely because God said, you're a Christian man. It's nothing I did. It's nothing I earned. The commendation, when, we, when I commend myself, it's because of the grace of God. If somebody sees good in me and they commend me because of my ability to stand up here and preach, I didn't do this. I mean, you learned to speak, I guess, but I never taught my vocal cords to do anything. All this, everything you see before you is from God, of God, and for God's glory. That's what Paul's talking about. That's where the commendation lies. Every way. Every way. And then Paul gets to be very verbose. Um, In some ways, maybe this is a very tough read, but do not skip this. Read it and read it again. The list that he cites here of the ways in which we can be commended or we display our faith. There's good, there's bad, and there's ugly. But the depth of salvation, the depth of what it is doing, he wants that to be felt. I'm going to read it one more time. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. These are how we commend ourselves. Great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. You ever commended somebody for their patience, their knowledge, kindness? I have. It was very nice of you. You really took your time. That was wonderful. How about commended somebody for their hardships and calamities? 
Hey, great job getting laid off and your family in almost financial ruin. Well done. That's a commendation for you. They'd say, how dare you? How can you do that? How can I commend you for hardship? How can I commend you for uh, dishonor? You, you were slandered. They wrote that terrible article. It was all lies. Congratulations. <laughs> That's exactly what Paul's saying. If what you're doing is the work of God, for God, because of what God's done for you, then the slander is either not slander, because it's true, or it's abjectly false, and it is slander, and fine. They're attacking God's work through you. Wonderful. That's accommodation for me. This list is sort of a blown-up version of the list, of, of the notion of uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. <laughs> well, how can death be gain? Well, because living embodies all of these things. Imprisonment. Hey, congrats on the imprisonment and the riot. That's a great, great job well done on that. Gold star on the riots. But that's what Paul says. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Comma, comma, comma. Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hungry, starving. Good job. Why? Why is it a good job? Because I'm starving for God. And that's not some trivial hunger strike nonsense. That's God has not provided me food in this season of my life. How can you be happy? Oh, because this is a favorable time. God's doing something through this. I can't wait to see what it is. Now, I may not see it until I'm on the other side of this life, but I can't wait to see. I, could, I would give everything I've got. To, I would wager that every single missionary that has perished for Christ would do it all over again. All over again. They know now the number of people that came to Christ because of what they did. Because they stood fast and were burned at the stake or drawn and quartered or were flayed to death. Awful anguish. And yet when we get to heaven, you know what we'll commend them on? Their beatings, their imprisonments, the riots, the labors, the sleepless nights. Look at the glory. Look at the treasures. We talked about this. The treasure you have in heaven because of this. What God has saved us from is far, far greater than anything we're going to endure here. Eternity makes this look like nothing. It's all going to end up being glory to God. Paul speaks freely and he's not holding back. After this long list, his goal, he makes it clear, is not to restrict them in God's work. This isn't about having them pull back. Don't get scared. Don't get worried. Rather, you're restricting yourselves with your idolatry. And you're thinking, he doesn't really say idolatry, does he? It's true. He says you are restricted in your own affections. <laughs> but what is it the people are, you know, affected to, toward? Things they love, right? And they, they've been restricted because they love things that aren't God. I love my wife, and I love my daughter, and I love my family, and I love you all here in church, but not like I love God. It's not. And it shouldn't be. I love lots of other material things in my life, right? But I wouldn't say I have great affection for that. Certainly not the affection I have for God. They're great, and they're nice, and they're a blessing. But if I put them in a place that's too high, like the Corinthians are doing with all the things they want, then it ends up becoming an idol. God ends up being underneath them. Paul's goal is not to stop them from worshiping God. It's to get them to prioritize this right. Put these idols aside. They need to get right with Jesus. And it's not about acting right. It's about being saved. 
we as a church love to, we, you know, we talk a lot, I've railed on this before, I guess, rail maybe is a little strong word, but the health and wealth gospel. The prosperity preachers, come to God and you get healthy and wealthy. And if you are healthy and wealthy, it must be because you're close to God, right? So let's focus on what's good for us. God's a means to an end and the end is happiness in this earth. But there's another, there's another kind of gospel that gets preached a lot and it's the, the, the good and clean gospel. The good and clean, act good, do good. And look clean. Maintain an appearance of godliness. And that's fine too, right? If you're healthy and wealthy, you're great. You're probably already going to be, you know, good and clean. But if you're not healthy and wealthy, at least tidy yourself up and look like you're healthy and wealthy and act that way. And then either way, we can punch the card and say, look at this church filled with wonderful, good Christian believers. Maybe none of which know who Jesus is or anything that he did and have no idea of that. It's about them and what they want. This is exactly the emulation that Corinth and the church therein are caught up in, looking like the world, acting like the world, good and clean. We want to attract them in here. We need to kind of look like them, and then we'll just sprinkle some Christ on top, and boom, we've got a new religion that's kind of like that thing Paul's talking about, but the world loves it because we're doing fun things and having big parties and we're staying grouped up, and the rich don't have to hang out with the poor, and we don't have to go through any of this stuff in the list that he said that sounds untoward. We'll just do the things we like and hang out together and you know, kind of have a, have a nice time. But Paul's saying, if, if you are working for Christ, that is not what's going to happen. Things are going to change. You're going to be convicted. You're going to get pulled from one side to another as God moves you. Convictions will occur. You'll just wake up one day and say, we can't do this anymore. Paul knows some of these folks are saved, but they need to get it together. They need to get right with Christ. If they're not saved, they need to get right. With, they need to get saved. And if they are saved, they need to heed Christ's word. And then Paul pivots. I say ish. Because what he's talking about is clearly marriage. And it's both in word and context. So this isn't like, maybe it's not even marriage at all. That's not what I'm saying. But why here? Why would Paul suddenly pivot from this notion of suffering and commendation for Christ into marriage? And I know what you're thinking. Oh, it's because marriage is suffering. No, marriage is a beautiful thing. But there's a point that's happening here that is still happening today, and that is that the desire for marriage had nothing to do with God. Oh, here's God, and here's my belief, and I love the Lord, and I follow Christ, and I'm in church all the time, but over here's my dating and marriage life. And maybe I hope that God can bring them together, but if not, I'll just have to sort that out myself. This is the church mentality I grew up in, and it's still pervasive today. Loads of Christians really don't want to hear too much about what God said because they expect a blessing. The, the dream person, the one for me, the whatever, to appear in my life and there of God. And if God didn't do it, then I guess I'll just have to, I'll have to slog through this myself and God will have to make something of it. That's an unfortunate approach. They wanted to marry for worldly reasons. Paul's well aware of this. We've, we've heard him talk many times to the Corinthians already about not acting a certain way and dressing in certain ways and this, that, and the other. So what Paul's talking about here is a really good indicator for them, and I would argue still a pretty good indicator for us of what's going on with regards to your faith and belief. Is Christ even driving your decisions around marriage? Or are you using your marriage as a tool to do something, get you some forward progress, right? Marry up, get, get some money from a dowry and this, that, and the other. But, you know, that's, that's more of a functional thing. It's like a job, not so much a, a faith issue. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Marriage is not a job. You're not supposed to apply for a marriage, and then after it gets bad or the benefits go away, quit 
not to get too uh, adult about this, but like, that's not how that's supposed to work, right? Well, the, the benefits package was great when I started here, but lately I feel like I don't, there's no benefit at all. I'm out of here. No, that's not what marriage is supposed to be. Their marriage is a covenant. Two people become one. That's the way God described it, and that's the way Paul is interpreting it for them. But that's not necessarily great for them. Right? They don't necessarily want to do that. And from Paul's perspective, there's nothing new under the sun. Paul notes that those of God have no party with those not of God. Well, aren't we call the witness to them, right? I mean, didn't we just talk a whole bunch about sharing God to people that don't know God? Yes. But we're not to be one flesh with them. If you, if you think about the notion of marriage as described in the Bible, what it entails, what it's designed to emulate, we're the bride of Christ. That's a marriage ceremony. Our marriage on earth is a shadow of that notion, a dedication between two, becoming one, not just a couple folks hanging out, cohabiting, doing life together. That ain't marriage. Marriage is in our minds supposed to be the union transcending any other union on this earth. So the way Paul says this, if you think about that perspective, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? How can I take a righteous flesh and a lawless flesh and push them together? What fellowship has light and darkness? Now you can argue, well, the darkness gets a little bit lighter, yeah, but the light also gets a little bit darker. If you take red and blue and mix them together, you don't have red and blue anymore. You have purple. There's nothing wrong with purple. But as analogies go, Let's say red's good, blue's bad. You don't want purple. It ain't red. It's not red. And what Paul's saying is, you are of Christ. When you join your flesh to somebody who is not of Christ, you're diminished by that. You have no party. These aren't my words. These are Paul's words. Marriage is special and holy because God said so. This isn't something that's just made up by us. Now, it is today. Mankind has their own construct of marriage. I don't want to blur the lines here. What Paul's talking about is not a marriage, you know, that was, was made by, I don't know, some weirdo on a, in a, on a drive-through marriage place. That's not what I'm talking about. What Paul's talking to them about, two believers in the church of Corinth that claim Christ, that if you do, here's what God says marriage is, and what you're doing is a problem. That does not work. Don't unequally yoke yourself. You will have to drag two people forward, and you don't want to do that. One agreement has a temple of God with idols. If you've got someone that's a believer and another person that's an idolater, and now they're one flesh, that's a problem. One of them's got to go. And, it, and it, you've you got to hope it's not God. You don't want to become an idolater to meet somebody in your life. But I don't know about everybody else, but I know plenty of people. I know plenty of renowned, famous people. Folks, I had a big part of my life growing up, my transition into faith understanding of what Christ was while I was being saved, that have decried the faith because marriages didn't work out. Their marriage fell apart and they walked away from God. Why? This is why. They were unequally yoked. They didn't know what was going on. They had no idea. They just wanted to be married so bad. Now I'm famous and I'm rich and there's a, I got the pick of the litter. Look at all these beautiful women, all of them claiming they're Christian. Why would they do that? Well, because they know I'm a Christian. And I've been singing for a long time about wanting a Christian wife. And oh, Lord, please bring me a Christian wife and this, that, and the other. And look at all the Christian wives that are at my doorstep. Which one will I pick? Maybe I was never a Christian because I don't even know what I'm looking for. Maybe she was never a Christian because she feels the same way I do. Then one day you wake up, the benefits are gone. I thought this was the favorable time. I thought you were my salvation. And now look, your marriage is over. There is no God. I'm deconstructing. 
Folks, this is nonsense. And it's exactly what Paul was warning us about 2,000 years ago. Don't get married because it's cool or fun or people want you to have kids. Hey, kids, I'm a parent. I want to have grandkids someday. But if I ask my daughter when she's going to get married and have grandkids, I expect her to tell me never to ask that again because it's none of my business. You know why? Because it's none of my business. I'm not going to dictate her marriage to her. Now, if she has questions, I'll answer But we have people that are like feeling pressure to get married and pressure to have kids. It's been a while. The clock's ticking. That is not what God's talking about here at all. Don't do that. Good grief, Paul. It's just marriage. Good grief, Chris. Just marriage. I've heard that. I've stated it myself and considered it. We get married and divorce all the time. So what? Paul's foundation is the holiness of marriage and its ultimate purpose. It's not designed to be about us and our happiness. I got bad news for you. My salvation in Christ is not for my happiness here on earth. Will I be happy on earth? Yes, I will. Will I be sad on earth? Yes, I will. Does that mean God has forsaken me? No, no, it doesn't. If I marry my wife, we've been married for several years now, and there have been wonderful times. There have been terrible times, times where I wished I was not married. But yet I am married because it's a covenant. Do you think there aren't times where God wished he didn't choose me? Now, I know God can't do that, but I bet so. I bet he's looked at me a couple times and said, I mean, you're lucky. You're lucky that I've chosen you. You're predestined to foretold. You're lucky because this is absurd. What are you doing? Yet here we are, right? This is a tale as old as time for me and my marriage and everything about it. But the foundation is something that is much greater than the two of us could want to be happy for the rest of our lives. It's holy because God said it's holy. And our ultimate purpose in our marriage? Glorify God. If someone commends us for a long, happy marriage, we can say, well, first of all, it's not that long. Second of all, I haven't been that happy. But it is glorifying God because we're doing our best. We are sticking by this because God is good and is giving us the wherewithal to see this covenant through. We said till death do us part, we're going to do that. Now, could we fall into sin and make a bad decision and get divorced? Sure. You know, that's, that's life. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. We are going to do, we want to do better than that. And fundamentally, you can't call a marriage godly and glorifying to God if one of the partners in the marriage is not of God. If you don't know who God is and you're trying to witness to them, it's like having the left hand witness to the right. You're one flesh. It's exceptionally difficult. Has anybody married ever had a conversation with your spouse on something that you really disagree with Maybe it's a, it's a dyed-in-the-wool disagreement. And through careful conversation and good, solid logic and reason, compelled them to just be like, you know what? You're right. You've been right all along, and I'm going to finally relent and say you were right. I can't think of an example necessarily of something like that in our marriage. But we've had conversations like, that go like this. Why don't you like that? I just don't. But Why? I just don't like it. Well, there must be a reason. There must be a reason for it, right? There may be, but I don't know what it is. But I can tell you this. I don't like it. Imagine coming to a place like that about, do you believe in Jesus? No. Why? I just don't. Now, I can live with a choice of like, which fabric do you prefer? I don't like that one. Why? I don't know. I don't like the way it sits. Why? Is it too bouncy? No, it's not that. I just don't like it. Fine. I can, whatever, it's a couch. But when it comes to salvation, and you've got that tension about that kind of a decision, what are you going to do? I'm the closest person to you. And you can't even tell me why you don't believe. You know why you can't say that? Because I can't tell you why I believe either, except God said so. 
I didn't do it. And if God doesn't choose them, now you're going to be with somebody your whole life. They're not elect. They don't ever come to Christ. That will hamper your ministry. It will. Paul says so. It's the truth. Then after this, Paul goes just full Old Testament. I didn't go through the scripture like I said. He, he, he quotes a whole bunch of scriptures to put all this together. Some of Isaiah and Exodus and all kinds of stuff. But this is a reminder to them that nothing has really changed with regards to what God wants for us. Right? Just after he goes on this little marriage tirade, he dons it, probably thinks to himself, I want to make them clear, I want to make it clear to them that this isn't just Paul waxing philosophical. Marriage was described by God in the Old Testament. So I'm going to hit him with a bunch of other OT stuff that they're going to nod with and say, Well, that's all true. <laughs> yeah, well, go back and check the marriage stuff because it's right next to it. God's people need to live God's way, and his promises for obedience have not changed. Grace is a free gift, but let's not receive it in vain. Sound familiar? Harkens all the way back to the beginning. Can God redeem anything that he wants? Yes, he can. Should we just count on him to do it because we want it? No. Points to ponder. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Through that grace, let us serve God in all things. Everything we do. Serving God. And number three, don't neglect your closest relationships while, quote, serving God. Let's jump into these here. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Salvation was costly beyond measure. We can measure measure Christ's death as one, and his resurrection as one, but what led to that death, the suffering that was endured prior to that, immeasurable. We're talking the cup of wrath dumped out onto him. A cup of wrath that I doubt we could even look at without dying was poured onto Christ. It's beyond comprehension what he dealt with on that cross. We can't perceive it. It's not worth it. The movie The Passion of the Christ is grotesque and very difficult to watch. All that really shows is worldly suffering, which was horrific, almost unbearable. But compared to the wrath of God, walk in the park. I can tell you Christ probably could have endured a lifetime of man's worst in lieu of a a few seconds of God's wrath. But God makes that gift free to us. It costs us nothing. It's a very expensive gift. A tremendous payment was made, but God now gives it to us for nothing. No works, no deeds, no good looking, no well-dressing, none of that required. Paul talks a lot about suffering, but only as a reminder of what Christ did. It's not about Paul's suffering, and it's not about mine. The commendation is our ability to get through that because of God's work in us. I got stuck in traffic on my way here today. I got, you know, it was terrible, everybody. So I endured that for you. Okay, well, did you? (laughs) Sounds like maybe you endured it for you, because you got a fun story. That's maybe true, right? Whatever suffering has led Paul to this letter to these folks... He wants them to know, this was for the glory of God. Did I do it? Yes. And you should be willing to do it too. Let us never receive the grace of God in vain. We know better. The grace of God can quickly become the benefit to us. We start to equate the two, and then we don't worry about God's grace so much. We just look for good things. It's a health and wealth gospel. It's a good and clean gospel. This is the same stuff that we've had for ages. God, give me the grace that I'd like in the areas that I want it. Thank you. Amen. Nobody prays that because it sounds very conceited, but that's how we act a lot of times. Second point, through grace, serve God in all things. I really do encourage you to take some time to ponder Paul's list here. When it feels like the world is spinning out of control or it's coming apart, something's going on in Ukraine or Russia, or you got friends that are there, 
and you're not sure exactly what to pray, say this out loud. Lord, help me to commend those believers in good and bad and suffering and hardship and hunger. How do I commend them? Lord, help me to know what to do. Do I lift them in prayer? Do I reach out to them? Can I send them money? Is any of this helpful? What do they want? I've shared this before, but at my first secret church event here, secret church is coming up soon, by the way. I probably should mention that in the announcement. Stay tuned next week. More about that. Uh, but in my, the, the, the first one I came to, there were people in Vietnam that were under duress by the government, and they didn't ask for us to pray for their suffering to stop. They asked us to pray that their suffering would make Christ known in the areas in which they were suffering. That was a really tough prayer to say, yeah, God, let them suffer. As I sit over here in an air-conditioned area, we had pizza and soda, you know, in a bathroom real close. And you got people saying, pray that the oppression that we're feeling, the arrests, the torture that we're enduring will further the name of Christ in this area. Comfortable American Christian, please pray that for us. There's a reason I had a problem doing that. It's because of this. The grace was not cheap. It was expensive for them, just in some ways like it was expensive for Christ, but in some ways it's not expensive for us. But as I go to serve God through this grace, there are great things by which I serve God. And there are horrible things like suffering and endurance requirements and starvation and hunger, loneliness, death. These are a conduit for us to serve other people. And we are not called to avoid the hard stuff. Hashtag tough love. I'm preaching this to myself. I don't like discomfort. I flee from it. We're wired to do that, right? People get out of the way. If something hurts you, your hand burns, before you even think about it, you pull your hand away. We're wired to survive. This isn't random looking around for something to do. When, it, when, when people are, are suffering for Christ, if it's in the midst of Christ, Christ empowers them to stand in a furnace and not get burnt, to have their limbs cut off and maybe not feel pain. I don't know. But if it's, if it's God's call, don't avoid the hard stuff. Do the stuff that might be difficult, might be taking a lot of time, might be tedious. All things. And finally, don't neglect your closest relationships while serving God. This one is rampant and destructive. We fail so often to adhere to God's guidance, and then we wonder why bad things happen. God said A, I did B. Oh, God, why? Where were you on that one, God? I said A. There's an old joke I'll tell quickly. It's probably getting long here in the, uh, in the clock. But well, a guy, it's a, it's a flood coming, right? And he, he's in his house and the waters are rising. And the guy comes by in a big truck. And he's like, come on. He's like, no, I prayed God's going to save me. I'm convicted. And then the water keeps rising and a small boat comes by. And he's like, get in the boat. The floods are going to take the house out. No, God's going to save me. And then it rises a little bit more. And then a bigger boat with some police come by. Get in the boat, sir. We're getting, I don't need it. God's going to save me. I'm convicted. It's all the way up to the roof. And He's standing on the top of the roof praying to God. Here comes a helicopter. The helicopter's like, sir, we'll throw your rope. I don't want the rope. God's going to save me. And the water rises and he drowns. And he stands before God and he says, I was convicted you're going to save me. And God says, I sent two boats, a car and a helicopter. Because we expect miracles. That's why. Oh, I want to be lifted. I want to float. Oh, God's been saving me. Look, at, look, I told you he'd save me. God tried. We are the church. We are the tools of salvation for the world around us. When we take our investments in things like marriage and close relationships and church governance and all this stuff, and we do it our way and not God's way, don't expect God to be right in the middle of all that. We've pretty much indicated to him that we don't need him. And he'll say, okay, well, when you're ready to do it my way, do it my way and watch me go crazy. I have a lot of people that ask me, man, what's going on at Calvary Heights these days? We're trying to do it God's way. That's it. That's what's going on. 
We looked at the Word. We looked at how God would have us organize a church, the things we would talk about, the way we would talk about it and communicate it accurately and completely, and that's what we're doing. Is it perfect? No. Are we the best? No. But are we doing what God has called us to do? As best I can tell, yes. And if the waters keep rising, then we'll figure out what God's going to have us do at that time. But I can tell you right now, if a boat comes by when we're praying for salvation from something that the boat would take us away from, we're going to get in the boat (laughs) because that's fine. But right now, God has kept the waters back. Church is going well here. God's word is being proclaimed loudly and clearly here. When we do that sort of thing and we, we want to change it around and do it our way, and Paul's, of course, addressing here is marriage specifically, we run a real risk of taking something that we think a little bit better might work, even though the word's not too clear about that, and let's, let's, let's put a little of our spin on it and see what happens, and normally what happens is it spins all right, out of control. What I really want to make clear here is can God redeem a marriage and make it holy despite how it started? Could an unequally yoked marriage become an equally yoked marriage? Could two non-believers both come to Christ and have a marriage? Yes, 100%. I am not decrying marriages between non-believers and believers and saying get a divorce. No, no. What I'm talking about is two believers that have questions about marriage. If you're of an age where you're thinking about getting married and you're trying to approach that, Paul's advice here is good. Yoke up with somebody that believes that you do. How will I know that? You'll talk to them about your faith. And they'll echo theirs to you. What if they lie to me? What if they say they're a believer and are saved and they get baptized and it's all pretend and I think we're yoked, but then I find out we're unequally yoked? Well, I think that goes back to Paul's list of suffering. You will now begin suffering because you have, to, you, have, you have been fooled by a liar and God will redeem that as well. There's a million cases of this that I know are very tricky and nuanced, but this is insofar as we can do the things that we can do, the power that we have over our life to make choices Let's rely on God and make godly choices. Should we vainly rely on God's grace and ignore clear instruction? It's too difficult to find a mate that's in church, but there's a whole bunch of people I'd like to date that are very attractive and seem super fun. They don't believe in Christ. Maybe I can just trust that God will redeem that marriage like you said he could do. No, don't do that. This is like sinning knowing that God will forgive you. It's generally a bad idea. We're not supposed to do that. So can God fix mistakes we make fundamentally? Yes, he can. Should we make mistakes so God could fix them? No. (laughs) Will we? Yes. Will God redeem them? Perhaps. But let's not not seek it out and kind of ask for it. So what about us? Rejoice, church. Salvation has come. Today is the day. Today is the day of favor. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know who Jesus is, we can fix it today. We'll tell you more about it. We can answer any questions that you've got within reason. I mean, I can't answer everything because I'm just one guy. Um, but my, between me and Mike, we probably have every answer needs. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. But we'll do our honest best, right? But regardless, let's share the good news. If you know who Jesus is and you know what's going on, share that news no matter what the cost. That list that Paul laid out, there's some good stuff in there. There's some bad stuff in there. But let's, let's double down to do that. Let's, let's honor God with our investment in our closest of relationships. If you're married now and you seek to have your marriage shifted more towards Christ, great. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you're struggling to make that happen, that'd be great. Uh, We would love to be able to do that. Uh, But if you're thinking about getting married and you're trying to figure out what steps to take in that regard or you're starting to to date seriously, thinking about marriage and kids or whatever, take the time to see what God has to say about that because there is something that God has to say about that and we covered that today. But through all this, let us depend on Him completely. Not our own self-worth, not our own abilities or our skill sets. All that came from God anyway. Let's really depend on God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time today. 
Thank you for scripture that is encouraging and challenging at the same time, Lord. And Lord, I pray that my words today, if they ruffle feathers or anybody feels off-put by them, Lord, that they will uh, come speak to me about it. Obviously, my goal here is not to be a barrier, just as Paul stated. My goal is not to be an obstacle. I want people to draw close to you, Lord. Uh, but drawing close to you means drawing close to you uh, on your terms with an understanding of who you are. So, uh, Lord, I, obviously I seek to divide the word rightly and, and, and accurately. Um, and I pray, Lord, that folks will receive that with the, the grace that I intended to come with, Lord. I know when you wrote this book, there's many verses I find challenging to my core, difficult for me. And um, there's been a few of these already in 2 Corinthians, Lord. So I just pray for all that hear this word today, Lord, that they know that I want them to know you. I want them, if they have questions or concerns, to let us know. We are more than happy to meet and chat about anything that was said today. Completely open book, just like your word, Lord. That's where all the knowledge of salvation lies, not in our behaviors or our best, our best bets or our best guesses, Lord. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your encouragement. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes this word known to us. And thank you for your son who died on that cross to give us a 